All right, Isaiah 40. So what do we do when we get the worst news of our lives? That's the question that's going to be answered for us in chapter 40. This is really an interesting thing because um, we are living with some uncertainty, aren't we? We are living in a time in our own day right now where we really don't know all that's going to happen. And, and while most of us, if any of us, are probably not sick, um, we still live with this anxiety at times because of how much this is, this is spread and moved. And we're, we're thinking, what happens if I hear the worst thing I could ever hear? What, what happens when we hear the worst news of our lives? And listen, this goes way beyond just the, the current virus issue that we're facing. This is true across the board, just living human life. We are always just one phone call away from, from total disaster. We really are. And so here's, here's the thing that God's word wants to meet us in right now. It is, what do we do? Where do we go when the worst news of our lives strikes. The Bible is really, really clear that the Christian life is not immune from the troubles of the world. We're not immune. In fact, um, not only are we not immune, we're guaranteed to have troubles. Jesus tells us, in this world, you will have troubles. He, th- there's no sugarcoating that. that. That's just true. And so as Christians, we're not immune from the troubles of the world, but here's what we have. We have a Savior, and he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. We have a God who walks with us, lovingly carries us, uh, is, is with us in the midst of trouble. It's not that we have no trouble, it's that we have a Savior who walks with us through trouble. And, and that's the message of Isaiah 40. This glorious passage of Scripture is, is a passage uh, and a message of comfort, of consolation, of hope, because we have a great God who is with us in the midst of trial. And so I, Isaiah 40 comes on the heels of chapter 39. And if you were with us last week, you know um, that Israel has just received the worst news of their lives. Hezekiah was the king of Israel, of Judah rather, and God had Um, healed him from a disease and gave him 15 more years of his life to live. And he took those 15 years and he squandered them and actually opened up the door uh, for the Babylonians to come in and and ultimately wreak havoc and destroy Judah. He's he's told that, that they will come and they will take all that is in his house. I'm reading from the end of 39 here. All that's in your house will be carried off. 
all that your fathers have stored to this day, carried to Babylon, nothing will be left. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom your father, whom you will father, shall be taken away. There shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. He's just been told that there will come a day down the road when everything is going to go terribly wrong. That's the worst possible news that they could have received. And here, it is here that we get into chapter 40. And the next words, this is huge, the next words out of God's mouth, verse 1 of chapter 40, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is profound and vitally important because in the midst of the worst news of the lives of the people of Judah, they are being given consolation, hope, and comfort from God. And so chapter 40 is a beautiful chapter, and it as we walk through this text, we are going to see six sources of comfort that God extends to his people. Six sources that we can run to to receive hope in uncertain times. Six anchors that we can, uh, that we can stake our life on and, uh, and count on in the midst of storms. This is this is um, wonderful news, and so we're going to walk through this. We're going to look at these six things, and we'll, then we'll tie it all in um, at the end here. So here's what it says. The first one is found in verse one through five. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So in these first five verses, we receive the, the first source of comfort for our lives in the midst of uncertainty and in the midst of the worst news we could ever receive. And it is really the most foundational comfort that we can run to. It is this, that comfort comes to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what these first five verses are telling us. It's, it's showing us that Jesus would come into the world and deal with all of the wrong things that have ever happened. Forgive us of our sins. Make our paths to God straight and level and safe. 
Jesus levels the ground. That's what these words are saying, right? Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. Uneven ground will become level. Rough places a plain. What, is, what are those verses reminding us of, telling us? It's that the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection brings about this ability for us to have a way to God that is safe, that is easy to get to, that requires no work on our own because he has done all of the work for us. He has finished all of the work and he has leveled the playing field. He has leveled the ground so that we can get to the cross. There is an old phrase, and I don't know who coined it or who said it, but there's a phrase that says that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And and the point of that quote is that um, uh, everybody, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter whether they're good or bad or whatever, they, there's all even access to Jesus. We can all get to Jesus. And that is what this is saying. It's telling us that Jesus would come, that he would do this work for us. And, and we know that this is about Jesus because in verse 3, we, we read these words, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, those words are quoted in the New Testament about John the Baptist, whose job was to make way, make a path ready for Jesus. And so John goes out into the wilderness. He's preaching repentance. And we know that he was the forerunner to Jesus. And so John was not the Savior. He was telling us about the Savior. And what would come from John, after John, was greater than John, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes into the world, and what he does through his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his bodily resurrection, the finished work of Jesus, that, that's what all that means, is that every valley will be lifted up. So you're not having to climb up out of some valley to get to Jesus. Every mountain will be made low, so you're not having to go up to some summit of some mountain to reach Jesus. Everything is brought down because he has brought God down to us. This is actually exactly what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. We read about how the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. It was torn in half. And that curtain was was meant to symbolize the separation of God from his people that God's holiness was too great for sinful people to to be near him. But when Jesus died and he paid the debt of all sin and he he dealt with our, our separation from God, that curtain was torn and now we have access to God through Jesus. Listen, in uncertain times, in difficult days, it is our relationship to God in Christ that anchors our souls. We cannot see Jesus um, as just like an added thing to our lives. We have to see him as central to everything that happens so that when trials and tribulations arise, we have a great Savior we can run to and cling to and walk with. Jesus makes that possible for us. So that's the first source of comfort. But let's look at the next one. It's in verses 6 through 8. 
it says, a voice says, cry. And I said, this is Isaiah talking, what shall I cry? And here's the message that Isaiah is given to say. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Here's the second source of comfort that Isaiah is told to give to his people in the midst of the worst news of their life. It it is that God comforts us through his word. And his word is eternal and true. God's word will last forever. That's what these verses tell us, right? It says that we are like grass and flowers. We're here and then we're gone, right? We don't, we don't last forever on this earth. We will have an eternity with Christ one day, but, but our mortal bodies that we live in right now are susceptible to death. We, we will die. That's one, unless Jesus decides to come back for us, before that day happens, um, we're going to die. We're going we're gonna to experience and walk through that valley. And yet what we can anchor our hope to is not in our ability to somehow live forever, but rather in the assurance that what God has said is true. And it is, it is always going to be true. It's not just that it could be true, and we're hoping that it's true, and we're crossing our fingers and going, I I sure hope. No, we have assurance that what God says is true, and we have this beautiful promise that, that even though our lives come and go, God's word abides forever, and and we can rest and bank all of our lives on what he says. This is why we need to be in his word. This is why we need to immerse ourselves in what God has to say because his word is true and it's eternal and it always points to Jesus, our ultimate source of hope. I've said this a hundred times probably over the last nine years that the entire Bible is about Jesus. When you read the Old Testament, it is preparing you for Jesus. When you read the Gospels, that's pretty clearly about Jesus, right? Because he's everywhere on every page. And when you get into the New Testament letters, it's all looking back at Jesus and what he's done for them, for us and for them. And so we see this amazing thing. In the Bible, everything points us to Jesus, who is the anchor of our hope in the midst of a storm. Uh, We get to lean into him. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Word. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how John in his gospel uh, refers to Jesus Christ as the Word of God. And so Jesus lasts forever. He stands forever. But what he has said stands forever as well, because what he says is rooted in who he is. So we get comfort through this fact that God's word is true and eternal and never changes and never ceases. Great news. Let's go on to number three. 
as we keep walking through this passage. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. It says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. These verses are so wonderful. Here's where the third source of comfort comes in this passage. It comes through God's shepherding care of us. These verses remind us that we have good news to share with people. It says it twice. Be heralds of good news. Tell people good news. Go out and cry out, this is God. This is who God is. This is who he is. Tell people about him. But what are we to tell people about God? It is that he comes with might. He's strong. He's, he, he's got everything he could ever need. But then, even though this God is huge, magnificent, strong, and powerful, he is tender and kind. He is gracious and loving. We're told in verse 11 that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will care for the lambs. He will carry them in his arms. He will lead us. This is comforting because this just goes back to Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. and We will not want... We, we, we see this beautiful promise of God's grace and goodness to us. That he will care for us and that he will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. So we will fear no evil for you are with me. Comfort comes when we understand and know that Jesus is with us in every storm, in every struggle in every horrific news we may receive. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 10 that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is our good shepherd. He carries us back to where we belong. But he even goes so far as to die to save us from our greatest enemies. We have a wonderful God who comforts us and shepherds us. Fourthly, we see in 12 through 17, the fourth comfort. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales 
and the hills in balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So this is interesting uh, because reading those verses, you might not initially get this thought that, oh, this is comforting. But it, but it really is when we understand what Isaiah is conveying. He's telling us two things about God in these verses. He's telling us that God is wise and that God reigns over all nations. Those two truths are incredibly important and incredibly comforting for us as we walk through trials. Here's the thing. What Isaiah is saying is this, that God knows everything. There's nothing that he doesn't know, and there's nothing that he can't figure out. There is absolute understanding in him. The first part of these verses talk about, uh, the 12 through 14, talk about God's wisdom and that he didn't get this wisdom from us. We weren't the ones who instructed him. He didn't tell us any of these. We didn't tell him any of these things. He is wise. He knows it all. He is so much smarter than we are. And we need to know that because when we walk through things that we don't understand, when we experience trials that we just can't wrap our heads around, why would this happen? Well, listen, we don't, we don't always have good answers for that. But what we have is a God who we can trust and know that he is wise and that he is always working for our good, even when we can't see that. We, we actually get that impression as well from the book of Job. Right? Job is a, is a whole book about a guy who suffers horribly, has horrendous suffering, loses his health, loses his children, loses his wealth, loses everything that's dear to him. And, you know, at the end of the book, he's really bitter. And he starts to talk to God about how unjust all this was and how unfair God was. And, and God just begins to show him, you know, Job, you, you don't know everything. You're not the guy that gets everything. I'm the one who knows what's going on, and you need to trust me. And, and while on one level that's hard to swallow, it is vital for us to cling to in the times of, of uncertainty and trouble that God is wise. The other half of this paragraph is that God reigns over the nations. God reigns over the nations. There is, in other words, there's no human power that can overcome the Lord. 
we don't need to fear human powers because we have a God who, who treats those nations as drops in a bucket, as nothing and emptiness, actually. And so we have this God that we can say, you know, we live in turbulent times. We live in uncertain times. We don't know what nations are, may or may not be up to. And there's, there's a lot of anxiety and fear in some of that. But if we look to Jesus and look to our God who is all-wise and is all-sovereign and powerful over the nations, we have nothing to fear. So that's number four. There's two more comfort, comforting truths in this passage. Let's look at the fifth. Uh, 18 through 26. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman and sets up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely... Are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So in, in those verses, there's a lot there, and, and here's, what's, here's what God is saying. He's asking a bunch of hypothetical questions, and he's saying to his people, listen, who, who are you going to compare me with? Are you going to compare me to some piece of wood or gold that someone worships and has no power and nothing, no life in them? Oh, I am totally, God says, I am totally unlike anything else. There is no one like me. There is no one that compares with me. And, and any attempt to replace me with something else will, will ultimately leave you empty. The, this, this comfort is coming through this truth, that God is sovereign in power. God has sovereign control. He knows what he's doing. And you know what? Nothing is outside of his power to, to change or, or maneuver. And in fact, God works all things together for good. We see a God who is sovereign over all things. And we don't totally understand what that looks like completely, but we know that we have to cling to a God who is great in might, who is strong in power, 
Because we so often in our times of trouble feel so helpless and powerless. And we are. We are. Um, I was reading just a couple um, hours ago, I guess, um, last night, and there's a, there was an article that somebody shared with an excerpt from a, a C.S. Lewis, um, uh, I guess an, um, an article or something that he wrote, um, an essay, that's the word. Um, he wrote this essay, and basically he was talking about um, how Christians should respond to the threat of an atomic bomb. So C.S. Lewis lived in the 40s. Um, he was an adult in the 40s. He died in the 50s, actually early 60s rather. Actually died the same day as JFK was assassinated. So nobody heard that C.S. Lewis died for a while because it didn't make the news. Um, but C.S. Lewis was a, you know, he, he really lived during the Cold War and, and World War II and all these things. He fought in World War I. Um, and, and so there was a lot of fear, right? And, and some of you may, may remember as children, you know, having that fear of the Cold War. That was before my time, obviously. But um, C.S. Lewis wrote about what should we do in light of this. And, and if you were just to take that article and replace the word atomic bomb with the word coronavirus um, or fill in the blank with anything else that may be ca- causing you fear, that article still speaks true today. Um, because it's not, it wasn't just about the atomic bomb, it was about the, the fears that we all experience. And the fear at the time was the, the bomb. The fear now may be the virus. The fear now may be a number of things. But we, the, the, the primary purpose of the article was to say, you know, as Christians, we have a God who is in control. And so we should be able to live our lives not dominated by fear, but rather by faith and trust in our sovereign God. And I, I don't have the article in front of me. I don't have any quotes to read, but if you, you could look it up um, yourself if you'd like to read it. And it's, it's a really helpful reminder. And it reminds us of what God is saying here, that he is sovereignly in control. So why do we need to be afraid? And why do we need to, to run to other sources of comfort when we have a God who loves us? So that's number five. Let's look at the last one. And this is, this is a beautiful paragraph. So verse 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God. You hear those words? Let's stop there. Isaiah says, why are you saying, God doesn't see me and he doesn't care about me? Isn't that the deepest anxiety and fear of our hearts? That God doesn't care for us? That God doesn't see us? That we're all alone out here? And, and Isaiah's going, why are you asking that question? And he begins to answer that fear with these words. 
verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Comfort comes to us through God's strength. That's the point. That we are so tempted, like Judah, like Israel, to say, my way is hidden from the Lord. He has disregarded me. That, that's our temptation, right? Especially in times of trouble. We're so tempted to think that. But the promise we have here is that God is strong. He never tires. He's never sick of you. He never rolls over and goes, oh, they're bothering me again. God never tires of you and he empowers you and strengthens you for the work ahead. Listen, life in our broken world can be draining, even exhausting. It, it can. So our hope rests not in our ability to keep up and keep going and, and be strong in ourselves, but our hope actually rests in God who never gets tired, who is never drained, and always graciously empowers you through Jesus Christ. The, the promise of Isaiah 40 is that God is our source of comfort, our comfort is, is seen in the very nature and character of who God is. We, we receive comfort when we acknowledge and lean into God himself. And that's actually what we see happen in the life of the Apostle Paul as well. In the book of 2 Corinthians, um, we... 2 Corinthians is actually going to be the next book we walk through after we finish Isaiah. Um, oops, there it is. And um, I love this book because it's one of the books that Paul really just lays out who he is and what his struggles are. It's very transparent. And um, in chapter 1, right out of the gate of 2 Corinthians, Paul has some incredibly helpful words for us to hear today. Starting in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. God is a God of comfort. 
he says this, God comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul says we are comforted by God so that we can comfort others. This is the community of Christ at work. We receive comfort from Christ. We extend comfort to others. But skip down to verse 8, just for the sake of time. And I want you to understand that these are not empty words from Paul. These are not just Paul tapping you on the head, going, there, there, God is comforting you. This is coming from a man who understands the depths of suffering. And because he understands the depths of suffering, he understands the depths of comfort from God. Look at verse 8. He says, For I do not want you to be aware, unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He's talking here, he's, he's recounting to them the things that happened to them in Asia. Now, more than likely, this is my guess, I don't know if this is exactly what he's thinking about. I think he's talking about his experience in Ephesus. If you read in Acts, in the book of Acts, about Paul's church planting journey in Ephesus, um, it was not good. Uh, I mean, it was good on one hand because God was saving a lot of people, but it was very, very painful for Paul. So what happens essentially is Paul's getting to Ephesus. He's preaching the gospel. There are people who are becoming Christians in, in massive numbers. And so because all these people are becoming Christians, they're throwing away their idols, the false gods and the magic. They actually were really into magicians and stuff. And so they had all these magic books that, that were, you know, had dark arts and all this stuff in it. And, and they threw all that stuff and burned all the books. And what was happening was, was that the people who were making money off of the idols and off of these books got really ticked off and they incited a riot the whole city rioted and they almost killed Paul um, and, and, his, and his companions. And they actually had to run out of town. It was very hard. And I think that's what he's referring to here because it was just such a devastating moment. Um, and there was a whole riot in a city over what Paul was preaching. It's crazy. So he's talking about this. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. And then listen to how he describes his afflictions. Verse we're still in verse 8. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. So, so Paul's struggles were not just these little, like, oh, I'm kind of bummed today. No, no, no. He felt so incredibly hurt, fearful, anxious, whatever, that they, he literally despaired of life and felt like God sent him to Asia to be killed. That's how, this is the Apostle Paul. <laughs> now, but look at what he does. This is where we need to, see, because we can have these moments too. We can have these moments where we despair of life 
absolutely can. So, so what do we do in that? Look at the end of verse 9. But that, that refers to the affliction, that refers to the sentence of death he felt he had. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says that all of the struggles and experiences he endured in Asia, and actually not just in Asia, but his whole life, um, from the time he became a Christian, was hard. And he, he experienced so much pain. He said that that was meant to make sure he didn't rely on himself. See, because when things are going really well, it's so easy to rely on yourself, isn't it? But it's when things are out of your control and you have no real option. That's when we rely on God. And, and then notice what Paul said, how Paul describes God. He describes him as the God who raises the dead. Paul's hope was not in his earthly circumstances. Paul's hope was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is this, that if God can bring Jesus back from the dead, then he can certainly take care of me. And that's true for you too. That's true for me. We don't have a God who is incapable of raising the dead. So what can't God do? If God can raise the dead, he can do anything. And he will use whatever comes to us for his glory and our good. Let's, in this next week, since we didn't have the, the gathering in worship, let's be sure to, to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ this week. In all of the uncertainty and all the things that we don't know what's to come, we can cling to the God who raises the dead and rely on him and be comforted. We, we also have this call in the first part of this passage. Paul says we are comforted by God so that we can comfort others. So, so as you have received comfort from God, extend comfort to others. If you Listen, this is a time that the Christians in our nation can rise to the challenge of loving our neighbors. It's amazing. I'm reading a book right now um, called uh, The Rise of Christianity. It's a historical and sociological look at why Christianity grew so much in the first three centuries of its, of its existence. And there's a chapter in that book. It's by a guy named Rod, Rodney Stark. And Rodney Stark talks about how epidemics were a key contributing factor to the growth of Christianity. Because what happened was that in about the year 150 or so, um, I can't remember the exact date, but there was a point where the, this epidemic struck the Roman Empire. And it, was, it could have been smallpox, it could have been the, the measles. They don't really know what it was, but it was something that people had never experienced, and so their immune systems just couldn't handle it. And there were people just dying everywhere. And, and what happened was that most of the time, people's, especially people who had money, they escaped. They, they, got, they ran for the hills. 
and they just left, left people for dead. So the government ran off, the, the aristocrats ran off, the wealthy people ran off, um, and many of them left behind their own family members to die. This is historical fact. And what Rodney Stark mentions in his book is that it was the Christians who stayed behind, who cared for the sick, who, who made sure that they were loved. And that is what compelled so many people to become Christians. It was one of the factors. And, and while we're not living in something like that, as far as we know, um, that, that's incredible and that's crazy. Um, we can follow the model of caring for our neighbors, of comforting our neighbors, of loving the people that God has called us to love. And so here's how you can do that. There's so many ways, right? Just like check in. Check in with the people around you. Make sure that they've got what they need. We, if you, yesterday I was at Menards, I was at Fleet Farm, I was at Walmart, I was, I was all over and there is no toilet paper in this city <laughs> um, that I've found. And listen, maybe if you have enough, that's something that you can tangibly use to love somebody around you. Give them some toilet paper. Check in. Make sure that they're okay. Um, we want to tangibly help one another. And, um, and, and so we, we just got to think about the ways that we can do that and what, what we can do to help. But it is something that Christ uses. We've seen it historically that these are the kind of things that Jesus uses to bring about um, people to him. Because when Christians don't live in fear, but rather live in the comfort that comes to us through Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, then we can go out and we can love and serve our, our neighbors and care for them. And that's really what we ought to do. So be comforted in Christ and comfort those around you. That's the takeaway. And I hope that you have a great week. I sincerely hope that... that um, you stay healthy and that you are able to, to move on with your life as I hope to as well. And we'll see what, what happens. We'll see if we can come together again next week. And if not, we'll do this again. I'll, I'll make another video and post it again. Uh, but in the meantime, until we can see each other again, uh, God bless. Please don't hesitate to contact me if you need anything. Um, and and we will do all that we can to help. So with all that said, um, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll conclude. Um, Jesus, we are thankful for you. And we are thankful that you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions. And, and we pray, Father, we pray that as we go about our week, that we will be transformed people and that we will go and help others be transformed. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.